Easter. This is the day that we've set aside in order to commemorate and celebrate the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And while it's true that the resurrection of Jesus is the crux of the Christian faith, well, it's also true that our Easter observances, well, they're usually preceded by an onslaught of articles written by those, you know, skeptical critics who are quick to call into question every aspect of uh, our Easter account. You know, they want to question every aspect of the biblical account of Easter. And so typically you'll go to the grocery store and you're getting in, getting in line to get your groceries. And, and there at the newsstand, you'll see those, those magazine titles, Did Jesus Really Rise from the Grave? And these sorts of things. Or, or you'll go to your favorite website and there you'll see, you know, the, the skeptics questioning the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They love to produce all of this right before Easter to get people questioning whether we should celebrate the resurrection of Jesus or not. And with that being the case, you know, I'd like to spend our time today examining the Easter evidence. Is our faith founded upon the facts or not? As we examine the Easter evidence, we're going to begin to see that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is actually established by overwhelming evidence. And with this as our focus, I want to begin by first considering the question about Jesus' existence. Or in other words, we should take a moment to ask, did Jesus actually exist? The reason why this question is important is because there are skeptics out there who will insist that Jesus wasn't even a real person. There's no historical character named Jesus. And, and so they just throw the whole uh, theory out by just, just claiming that there was, there was no such individual as Jesus Christ. And, and so did Jesus really exist? With this question in mind, you might like to know that the first century Roman historian whose name was Tacitus, he actually mentioned Jesus in his writings. Not only that, but the first century Jewish historian named Josephus, he also mentioned Jesus in his writings. The Babylonian Talmud, written by Jewish leaders, uh, uh, confirmed Jesus' crucifixion, which they say took place on the eve of the Passover. And the first century lawyer named Pliny the Younger also recorded early Christian worship practices, which included the fact that Christians at that point in time worshipped Jesus as God and even included a reference to the love feast and the Lord's Supper. Now, when we examine uh, some of these writings, like uh, if, if we examine the writings of Josephus or, or the writings of Gentile historians and officials coupled together with the writings that we find in the New Testament, we end up with persuasive evidence which proves that there was a historical person named Jesus, that Jesus truly existed. And so fact number one, Jesus is without debate a historical person who really lived there in Israel during the early first century. But now, this doesn't prove that Jesus rose up from the grave. You know, just because there was an individual there in the first century there in Israel named Jesus, uh, that doesn't mean that the historical Jesus is the same exact person as the Jesus that we find in the Bible. As a matter of fact, there are many scholars who believe that Jesus was, yeah, sure, a literal historical person, but then at the same time, they reject the resurrection story of Jesus Christ and for a few reasons. You know, one of those reasons is based on the belief that, uh, that Jesus never really died on the cross or that he was crucified and he didn't really fully die. And so they, they question the resurrection because of that. That being the case, we should take some time to explore the facts surrounding 
the crucifixion of Christ Jesus. And with this as the focus, I should take a moment to remind you that the authors of the New Testament were quite clear about Christ's crucifixion. For example, in Matthew chapter 27, the apostle Matthew tells us that they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there, and they put up over his head the accusation written against him, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Here in these verses, Matthew tells us you know, that, the, that Jesus was in fact crucified. And, and this also tells us that he must have then died upon the cross, because the fact is this, no one ever survived a Roman crucifixion. The crucifixion isn't something that a person would simply survive. And not only did Matthew report the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, but it's in Acts chapter 2 where the apostle Peter also tells us, he says, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. From this we can see that Matthew and Peter, they they both believe that Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross. And so uh, according to these two apostles, Jesus not only existed as a historical individual, but he also died upon a Roman cross. Further evidence of this is, is, is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That's where Paul confirms all of this by declaring this. He says, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. So Paul here is letting us know that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. What Scriptures is he referring to? Well, according to the Old Testament Scriptures, the Messiah would die having his hands and his feet pierced. As a matter of fact, it's in the 22nd Psalm where King David says this. He writes, Dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Here in these verses, we find King David, he's prophetically pointing to the death of the Messiah, and this was written 1,000 years before the fact. 1,000 years before Jesus died on the cross, King David wrote about it. And though death by crucifixion wasn't even invented yet, David tells us that the Messiah would die with pierced hands and feet. According to Paul, Jesus did in fact die according to the scriptures and and having his hands and feet pierced through with nails, this scripture was fulfilled as Jesus hung there upon that Roman cross. So we see then that the writers of the New Testament, they were clear in reporting that Jesus was in fact crucified. Not only do we find evidence of this in the Bible, but we also find extra biblical evidence to support the same belief. For example, let's again consider the first century Jewish historian named Josephus. His name was actually Flavius Josephus. Some called him Flava Flavius Josephus, probably because he had a sundial uh, around his hanging from a chain. 
But here we see Josephus, this Jewish historian, he says this, he says the disciples reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive accordingly. He was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. Now from this first century historical account of Josephus, well, the, the crucifixion of Christ seems to be a historical fact. And not only does Josephus confirm this, but the Jewish leaders who compiled the writings of the Talmud, they also confirm the, the, the life and the death of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, the Jewish writings found in the Babylonian Talmud confirm this. They, they let us know that Jesus' crucifixion occurred on the eve of the, of the feast of the Passover. And so we see that Jesus' crucifixion, it was known to historians like Flavius Josephus. It was known to the uh, Jewish uh, religious leaders who compiled the Talmud. And it was known to the Christians as well. So we have biblical and extra-biblical accounts confirming the cross of Jesus Christ. Not only that, but there were also Greek and Roman historians who mentioned the crucifixion of Christ, like the second century Greek writer named Lucian of Samosata, who tells us that Jesus was worshipped by Christians and introduced new teachings and was crucified for them. So in the second century, we see a, a, a Greek writer confirming the existence of the church as Christians would gather to uh, worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we consider the first fact, Jesus actually existed, uh, we also have to now take into account the second fact that he literally died upon the cross. This brings us to fact number three, which then is focused on the burial of Jesus Christ. And it might help you to know that there are many skeptics who insist that there was no resurrection because, you know, Jesus being crucified was then just his body was cast into some, you know, uh, you know, uh, common grave used for criminals. And chances are uh, wild dogs in the area came and found his body and ate it. And that's why there is no body. That's what some skeptics insist. And yet the Bible assures us that Jesus wasn't cast into some common criminal grave. No, instead, Jesus was buried in the tomb of a man named Joseph of Arimathea. As a matter of fact, look with me here at Matthew chapter 27. Here Matthew tells us that when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. Now here in Matthew's account, we find this man named Joseph from Arimathea. He goes to Pilate and asks for the body of Jesus Christ. And so while the Jewish leaders might, uh, may have wanted to send the body of Jesus to a criminal's grave, Joseph of Arimathea made sure that that didn't happen. This man named Joseph made sure to ask the Roman governor if he could take the body of Jesus Christ and give it a proper burial in his own tomb. And listen, not only was the location of this tomb known to Joseph of Arimathea, but it was also known to both the Jews and the Romans. As a matter of fact, according to the Apostle Matthew, the Jewish leaders actually went and asked Pilate to place a company of Roman soldiers outside of the tomb. As a matter of fact, look with me here at Matthew chapter 27. 
I want to focus your attention there at verse 62. Here Matthew writes, On the next day which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Now here in these verses, we find the chief priests and the Pharisees there in Israel. They're asking Pontius Pilate to send military men, soldiers, who could go and guard the tomb so that the disciples of Christ couldn't steal the body away and fake a resurrection. Now why would these men guard a tomb if they were the ones who had cast the the, the Lord's body into a common grave? Why would they go and guard a tomb if Jesus wasn't actually in that tomb? Clearly, Jesus' lifeless body had been placed in a tomb, a known location, uh, which was known to the Christians and and to the religious uh, leaders of Israel, as well as to the Roman soldiers who were guarding it. You know, when it comes to the skeptics who argue against Matthew's account, I would simply ask them to produce one credible source from the first or the second century. Show me one historical account from the first or second century that shows that the body of Jesus Christ was buried in some unmarked grave for criminals. Just give me one source. It's easy to make up that story after the fact, but let's see the historical documentation. You know, like the documents that we have that talk about how Jesus was buried in a known tomb. There is no such account. And since there are no competing burial stories coming from the first or the second century, well, I find it more reasonable to simply believe that Jesus was buried in the tomb of Joseph from Arimathea and that that tomb was guarded by Roman soldiers at the request of Jewish religious leaders. Now, this brings us to our fourth fact, because listen, while, while it's true that Jesus literally existed, that he was crucified on the cross, and, and while it's true that he was buried in a known tomb, it's, it's also a fact that the same tomb ended up being found empty on the third day. Now, as we begin to talk about the empty tomb, I, I realize that there are many explanations for why there was no body there on the third day. And, and here in a few minutes, we're going to consider four of the best explanations which have been offered by the skeptics. But before we get there, I think it would be important for us to just spend a few minutes examining the evidence for the empty tomb so that we can determine whether or not the empty tomb is a historical fact or not. With this as the focus, let's examine the testimony of John. We find ourselves here in John chapter 20. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 1. Here John writes, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb, So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. Now, you've got to love this humble brag. John's essentially saying here that I outran Peter. 
And in verse 5, we learn that he stooped down and looked in and saw the linen clothes lying there, and yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came in, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Now, here in John's account, we find John helping us to see that the tomb uh, where the body of Jesus had been placed, it was found empty on the first day of the week, which was the third day from the crucifixion. Despite the presence of that Roman guard of soldiers, despite the fact that it had been sealed with the seal of Pilate, and breaking that seal would have resulted in certain death, Despite all of these facts, the the tomb still ended up completely empty on the third day. Now, an empty tomb doesn't prove that Jesus rose from the grave. But it does tell us that according to John, the empty tomb is a historical fact. And not only did the disciples of Christ find an empty tomb, but, but so did the Romans and the Jews. As a matter of fact, Matthew tells us that the Roman soldiers actually conspired with the chief priests in order to accuse the disciples of stealing the body. With this in mind, look with me there at Matthew chapter 28. It's verse 11 where Matthew writes, Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Now, now here in these verses, we find the initial seed money being used to create CNN news. And, or fake news. You might just call it fake news. I think Brian Stelter's great, 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 great grandfather is somewhere here in this group. But the Romans and the Jews here are actually conspiring together to, to create this fake news story about why there's no body. Now, why would they feel the need to craft a story about a missing body if there was no missing body? If there was no missing body, then there's no, there's no fake news to create. There's no news. Body's still there. But the body was missing. And they knew that the disciples didn't come and steal the body. Can you imagine these disciples who ran away scared the night of Christ's arrest, turning around and then going and taking on Roman soldiers? Defeating them? And then stealing the body away and hiding it? But that's the account that they're giving. Now, if if you were one of these Roman soldiers, wouldn't you be embarrassed that, yeah, Jewish fishermen came and, and beat us up? broke the seal on the tomb and stole the body of Christ away. Why? Well, so that they can fake a resurrection so that then they can tell a story about Jesus rising from the grave. Makes no sense. At the same time, listen, if the Romans and the Jews could have produced the lifeless body of Jesus Christ, then the Christian faith would have been dead at conception. Imagine Peter preaching on that first day of Pentecost. Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. 
And the Jewish leaders come along and say, no, here's his body. We've had it the whole time. Christianity's done. No resurrection, no Christianity. And yet we see extra biblical sources from the first and second century talking about Christians gathering together, worshiping Jesus as a risen redeemer. Where would they get this idea from if it never happened? The birth of the church itself proves without a doubt that the tomb was in fact empty. And therefore, the primitive Christians believed in the resurrection. This brings us to the fifth fact because listen, while it's, it's a fact that Jesus existed, that he was crucified on the cross, that he was buried in a known tomb, and then the tomb was found empty on the third day, these facts still don't yet prove that Jesus actually rose from the grave, though it was believed. But the fifth fact, I believe, uh, does seem to suggest that Jesus somehow managed uh, to, to, to come back and meet with his disciples on the third day after the cross. Now, as we begin to consider this fifth fact, I should first point out that there are many people who think that, you know, that, that they've somehow seen someone that uh, ha- is already dead. Uh, for example, you can go online and, 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 and you can find uh, accounts of people who insist that Elvis didn't die. He's actually a pastor somewhere, I think, in Tennessee. Uh, and, 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 and they're certain. They're certain that it's Elvis. But, but, but despite that, you know, there are people who think that they've seen Elvis after his death. Others insist that they've seen Tupac hanging out with Michael Jackson, I think. But there's a lot of people who, who will say that they've seen someone who we know is deceased, these alleged postmortem appearances are more likely, you know, just something like a case of mistaken identity, you know, except for the Elvis pastor. We know that's Elvis. But, uh, but apart from that one, you know, this is typically a case of mistaken identity. You know, you see someone across a crowded room or somewhere at the mall, you know, and you know oh, I think that might have been Tupac. You know, he's gained weight since then, so he's probably three Pac now, but And that's what they try to say. The skeptics will come along and say, well, you know, the disciples think they saw Jesus. You know, I mean, we know the, these, these first century Jewish guys, they all look the same. So, you know, the, who, who could say, you know, who could say? But it wasn't like that at all. It, it wasn't a case of mistaken identity, no. Uh, to, and to prove my point, let's consider uh, Paul's account here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Look with me again at verse 3. Here Paul declares, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried. And notice that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. How do we know? Verse 5, He was seen by Cephas. Then by the 12, after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. And then Paul goes on to talk about how he himself also had, some, uh, had an experience with the risen Lord. But Paul here helps us to see that there were more than just a few eyewitnesses. We're not talking about one or two guys that just so happened to see it and then they spread the news. No, there were at least 500 plus witnesses who saw Jesus Christ after he died there on the cross. And listen, these eyewitnesses weren't saying that they saw, you know, Jesus from afar walking through some marketplace. 
Instead, they were insisting that they had walked with him and talked with him. And they were certain that it was, in fact, the Lord who had risen from the grave. With this in mind, look with me here at John chapter 20. It's beginning at verse 24 where John writes, Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands. And reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Here in these verses, we find John helping us to see how Jesus actually came and proved himself to be risen from the grave. He actually allows this, 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 this disciple named Doubting Thomas, so we call him Doubting Thomas, I like to say that he was skeptical Thomas. You know, we find this skeptic insisting that he will not believe until he can, he can examine the evidence. And rather than scolding him, Jesus shows up and says, check it out. Check out the nail prints. Check out the spear wound in the side. And at that moment, Thomas believed and worshiped Jesus, declaring my Lord and my God. Luke also reveals how Jesus actually presented himself, not just this once, but Jesus presented himself over the course of a month with many infallible proofs. Here's how Luke puts it in Acts chapter 1. Beginning at verse 1, Luke writes, The former account I made with Theophilus of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up, speaking of his ascension into heaven. Until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Luke here assures us that Jesus presented himself to his disciples after the cross with many infallible proofs. And he did this not just on day one, not just on day two, not just on day three. For 40 days, Jesus spent time with his disciples. And during that time, over 500 eyewitnesses saw the risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And were convinced that the empty tomb was empty because Jesus is risen. With all of this in mind, let's take a moment to quickly recap the facts that we've considered so far. Fact number one, Jesus literally existed. Fact number two, he was actually crucified on the cross. Fact number three, he was buried in a known tomb guarded by Roman soldiers. 
Fact number four, his tomb was found empty on the third day. In fact number five, he was seen by hundreds of people after his death. And he spent 40 days proving that he was risen. Now this brings us to our sixth and final fact, which points us to the firmly held convictions of those who actually saw him. With that, I want to take a moment to consider the testimonies of those who claim to have seen the risen Lord. And as we begin to consider this sixth fact, I should point out that the disciples not only believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but they were also willing to go and suffer and die for this belief. And and with that, you have to remember that on the night of Christ's arrest, did his disciples stay there side by side with Jesus? No, they fled. You know, Peter and John stuck it out as long as they could. You know, Peter eventually, you know, ran away too. John was the only one who ended up there at the cross. He was the only apostle of Christ, I should say, who ended up there at the cross at the time of Christ's death. The rest of the guys ran, hid, tried to assimilate back into their old lives. They weren't willing to die for Jesus on the night of his arrest. But within 40 days, within 40 days of his resurrection, they were ready to die for the message of Jesus' resurrection. As a matter of fact, look with me here at Acts chapter 4. I want to direct your attention beginning at verse 18. Luke tells us here that the religious leaders called the disciples and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus Christ. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they, they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. Here in these verses, you know, we don't see the same cowering disciples who went and hid for fear of being persecuted themselves. You know, they, they didn't, you know, these weren't the same guys. We find these Christians with strong convictions, so much so that, that Peter's insisting that he's not even concerned about their threats. But he's going to instead proclaim the truth because he can't help but to speak of the things that he had seen and heard. That's exactly what they did. They went back out preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and as a result, they were arrested again. With this in mind, look with me there at Acts chapter 5. I want to begin reading at verse 27. Here Luke tells us that when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. 
Now here in these verses, we find Peter and the rest of the apostles, they're testifying now in this Jewish court that they were all witnesses of Christ's resurrection and his ascension into heaven. And and as a result here, the the threats of this human court didn't persuade them at all. The threats of this human court could not persuade these men to change their testimony. And as we consider the boldness of these disciples, you know, some skeptics might assume that, well, this is just part of their hoax. They created a fictitious account of the resurrection, and now they've got to play it out. Some might even argue that these men were willing to face the possible punishment of a Jewish court in order to perpetuate the myth that Jesus had risen from the grave. But then the question that we ought to be asking is this. How much punishment is a person willing to endure in order to maintain a story that they know to be a lie? I'm not asking do people die for something that is a lie. People die for lies all the time. But it's a lie that they think is true. People die for things that they think is true, but it's just not true. But how many people are willing to die for something that they know is a lie? And I think if I crunch some numbers real quick and do some math, I'm, let me zero, zero percent. No one's willing to die for something that they know is a lie. To prove my point, just think past back over the last two years. How many people immediately change their entire life Some people still living in lockdown even today. Why? Self-preservation. Period. Oh, yeah, we make it all about, well, I don't want to get grandma sick. No, no. We don't want to get sick. So what do we do? We put the mask on. We go home. We hide. We lock down. Self-preservation. We are all very interested in not dying. So if you create a lie, if you create some mythology, some fictitious story, and you start spreading this story, and then some authority figure comes along and says, are you sure this is true? And you go, yeah, it's true. And they go, well, we're going to kill you unless you recant. Well, if you know it's a lie, what are you going to do? Self-preservation. I think most Christians, when we play out the scenario that there might come a day when someone says, if, if you don't recant Jesus Christ, I'm going to kill you. I mean, some Christians fear that they might recant what they know is true, just because they don't have the courage. So you better believe that these guys, if they knew that they had made up the mythology, if they knew that this was a fictitious story, and then, they, and then someone comes along and says, hey, we're going to crucify you unless you recant. Why would all of these guys die for something that they knew was a lie? Just to be clear about this, let's, let's consider some of the historic traditions that have been passed down to us throughout the church age. You might not know this, but the apostle James, well, he was put to death with the sword by the command of King Herod because he would not recant his faith in Jesus Christ. The apostle Peter was crucified upside down on an X-shaped cross in Rome because he felt unworthy to die in the same manner as his savior. The apostle Matthew also suffered martyrdom in Ethiopia for the message of the cross. He was uh, killed by, uh, by a sword. Uh, The Apostle John faced martyrdom when he was boiled in a huge basin of oil during uh, a wave of persecution that occurred there in Rome. He somehow supernaturally survived this. 
and was then exiled to the island Patmos. The apostle Bartholomew was flayed to death by a whip because he was preaching the gospel in Armenia. The apostle Andrew was whipped severely by seven soldiers and then crucified on an X-shaped cross there in Greece because he would not recant. His followers reported that when he was led toward the cross, Andrew declared, I have long desired and expected this happy hour. The cross has been consecrated by the body of Christ hanging on it. What incredible faith. The apostle Thomas was stabbed with a spear in India during one of his missionary trips to establish the church in India. The apostle Matthias was stoned and then he was beheaded. The apostle Paul was tortured and and then beheaded by the evil emperor Nero in Rome. James, the brother of Jesus, was thrown from the southeast pinnacle of the temple because he refused to deny his faith in Jesus Christ. And when they discovered that he had somehow survived the fall, well, that's when his enemies decided to beat him to death with a club. And listen, this is just a scratch on the surface of all the martyrs throughout all of church history. And and I could go on and on with stories of first and second century Christians who, who were persecuted and killed because they would not recant their faith in Jesus Christ and they would not stop preaching the gospel message. Now think about that for a moment. These are, these are the men uh, that, that ran away on the night of Jesus' arrest. And yet within 40 days, they had the intestinal fortitude to go back into the world preaching the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ until the day they were murdered and martyred for this message. From this, we can be certain that these disciples of Christ, they truly believe that they saw Jesus risen from the grave. And remember, they spent 40 days with him. This was no mistake. They weren't wondering if somehow they had seen Jesus, you know, in the mall somewhere, across a crowded, you know, auditorium or something. They knew that Jesus rose up from the grave. They handled him with their hands. They heard him with their ears. They saw him with their eyes. And they were all willing to suffer a martyr's death preaching the gospel message of our risen Redeemer. And not only were they convinced about it, but it would seem as if there were those who were outside of the church who were also led to believe. As a matter of fact, consider again the words of that first century Jewish historian named Josephus. Here's what he said in his book Antiquities. He says, now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man. For he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. Here in this historic document, this this Jewish historian named Josephus assures us that Jesus appeared to his disciples alive. Now, I'm not suggesting that Josephus believed it. I'm just saying that he's, he's reporting the news here. He's telling us that the disciples believed that Jesus appeared to them alive on the third day after his crucifixion. Now, I pray that when we get to heaven, Christian, that that we'll meet Josephus. I, I pray that he did become a Christian convert. But I'm just saying that that he's just reporting the facts of the time period. 
And from this extra biblical account, it's reasonable to conclude that the disciples truly believed that they saw the risen Lord after his death and his burial. And as we consider this compelling evidence for Easter, it's important to understand that, you know, there are still those who reject the evidence. And the reason why is because they've embraced an argument that offers another explanation. And with that being the case, you know, we should take some time to consider these contrary arguments that have convinced so many people to reject the resurrection of Christ Jesus, because obviously this must be some strong, you know, evidence here. This, this must be some very logical, rational reason for, for why we should reject everything that we just considered. With that, let's begin with the conspiracy theory. The conspiracy theory usually, usually goes something like this. You know, Jesus, uh, after he died upon the cross, you know, the disciples didn't know what to do with it. They were wondering what they should do about all of this. And so they decided, hey, let's, let's just keep this thing going. You know, we've already got some steam on this. You know, we don't want to lose any likes online. So, so you know, let's, let, let's, let's just kind of perpetuate the story here. Let's, let's, let's fake the resurrection. Let's take the body. We'll hide it. And then we'll just tell everybody that we saw Jesus, you know, after he died. So they go to the tomb, they steal the lifeless body of Christ, they carry it away, hide it in an unknown location so that they can turn around and convince everyone that Jesus had risen up from the grave just as he promised. Now, the main problem with this argument, we've already kind of talked about it, the very people who would have created the so-called resurrection conspiracy would then go on to face horrible death simply because they were unwilling to recant the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Or in other words, the disciples would have known that the resurrection was uh, you know, a, a fictitious story that they had invented, and we know that it just flies in the face of, of self-preservation to die for something that we know to be a lie. Therefore, the conspiracy theory uh, is completely debunked and entirely untenable because people don't do this. People don't die for things that they know are lies. So we have to throw out the conspiracy theory. What about the swoon theory? Well, just to be clear, the swoon theory, it usually goes something like this. Jesus didn't really die on the cross, but instead he swooned, which is to say that, you know, he passed out from the pain and, and, and you know, uh, in, in his state, uh, you know, of, of unconsciousness, you know, the, the Roman soldiers weren't smart enough to realize that he was just passed out and they thought he was dead. So they took him down from the cross, put him in the tomb. And somehow the magical Israeli air uh, there in the tomb just helped him to just recover. That's amazing. So over the course of those three days in the tomb, his health began to improve. He was able to get up, you know, as, as the spear wound healed and as the nail prints healed. And somehow he's able to roll the stone away and, you know, overpower the soldiers and, and, and then go present himself to all of his disciples as risen from the grave. Now, the, the main problem with the swoon theory is based on the fact that no one ever survived a Roman crucifixion. Remember, the Roman soldier with the spear actually stabbed Jesus in the heart. Now, I don't know if you've ever been stabbed in the heart, but it's not typically something that you survive. You know, there's no tourniquet, you know, for that. Or, no, no, you typically pass out first and then you bleed out. Therefore, we know that the swoon theory is entirely untenable because, well, Jesus got stabbed in the heart. It's not something you survive. Then there's the hallucination theory, which is exactly what it sounds like. You know, the skeptics who use this argue that, you know, all the disciples were just hallucinating these appearances, right? 
They were merely seeing desire-driven hallucinations. And, and it's kind of like, you know, when I'm on a diet, it's like everything looks like a donut, you know. It's just, maybe, it's, maybe it's like that. And though the disciples went out and told everyone that they had seen the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the skeptics insist that, well, they were all just having a mass hallucination. But the problem with this hallucination theory is it's based on the fact that hallucinations occur in the brain of an individual. Hallucinations happen individually and not corporately amongst a, a flap of people. Therefore, whenever you have 500 people witnessing the same exact thing, that's not a hallucination. No, instead, it's an actual sighting of the thing that they, that they think they're seeing there. And, and according to the facts, you know, there were over 500 eyewitnesses who say they saw the risen Lord after his death and after his burial. And we know that Jesus hung out with them for 40 days. So they had a 40-day hallucination. Makes no sense. We must conclude that the hallucination theory is completely debunked. Finally, there's the myth theory, which again is fairly self-explanatory. This theory, you know, it's created by the skeptics that argue that the resurrection of Jesus never actually occurred. But instead, you know, the whole story was made up by a group of fiction writers who cooked up the story around the campfire. You know, uh, you know typically you'll hear, you'll hear something like this, that, that there was the historical Jesus there in the first century. And they told stories about Jesus to the, to the next generation. And they kind of, you know, like the telephone game, told their stories to the next generation. And then by the third, fourth century, you know, you, you have this embellished Jesus Christ. And while, while it's true that there was a historical Jesus over the generations and years, you know, it just kind of became this superhero. Jesus, and it's not true. Now, I'll remind you that there are biblical and extra-biblical accounts that can be traced back to the first century that present us with stories about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, as well as all the miracles that he performed. And with that being the case, this theory, well, it's unable to account for those early reports. Not only that, but it the, this, uh, this theory uh, can't account for first century disciples who are willing to suffer a martyr's death for the message of Christ's resurrection. And based on this fact, it's only reasonable to conclude then that the myth theory has also been debunked because it's unable to explain why these men were willing to go and die for a myth which hadn't yet even been created. Now, there are other theories out, that which, uh, out there which have been suggested by other skeptics, but I believe that these are the best arguments that have been presented against the, the evidence for Easter. Those who insist that there's some other explanation for the resurrection of Jesus Christ have yet to offer up something that actually makes sense. They have yet to offer up uh, an argument against Easter which would answer more questions than it raises. And with that being the case, I believe that the rational person will quickly realize that the best arguments against Easter fail to establish a reasonable reason for rejecting the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And at the same time, listen, as we've already seen, there's overwhelming evidence that establishes the Easter story. Remember, it's, it was... Back in the beginning of this study, when we began to examine six facts, fact number one, 
There's undeniable evidence that Jesus existed. Fact number two, there's both biblical and extra biblical evidence that Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross. Fact number three, Jesus was buried in a known tomb, which was then guarded by Roman soldiers. Fact number four, the tomb was found empty on the third day. Fact number five, Jesus was seen alive after his death and his burial. Fact number six, the eyewitnesses, they were so convinced by this that they went on to die a martyr's death for the Easter message. In light of these facts, the reasonable person will conclude that the best explanation for all of these facts, it's simply this. Jesus Christ rose up from the grave on the third day after his crucifixion. Any other explanation only raises more questions than it answers. And with that being the case, it only stands to reason that the Lord Jesus is the only begotten Son of God who was sent to offer himself as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. And therefore, the Easter evidence helps us to see that Jesus is the one who has power over death and therefore has power over sin. To make my case, we should consider a conversation that Jesus had with a group of skeptical Jews who asked for a sign. It's here in John chapter 2, beginning at verse 18. Here the Jews answered and said to Jesus, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? And Jesus answered and said to him, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus assuring his audience that he was the one with the infinite power necessary for raising himself up from the dead. That's what he says. Destroy this temple, speaking of his body, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. That's what he said. And Jesus confirmed this in John chapter 10 where he declares this, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. And then he proved it. He proved it on that first Easter morning when he rose up from the grave. Now, when we take into consideration what the entire Bible says about this, we know that from the scriptures, the Father raised Jesus up from the dead. The Holy Spirit raised Jesus up from the dead. And Jesus raised Jesus up from the dead. And in consideration of the doctrine of the Trinity, we see that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three persons of the same Godhead. And Jesus here is saying, I will raise up my own body from the dead. And in this, he is claiming to be God incarnate. Think about it for a moment. Jesus not only prophetically promised to raise himself up from the grave, but then he actually fulfilled that prophetic promise by his own power. You know, as a pastor, I've officiated over many funerals. And I can assure you that there is no power in a lifeless corpse. And yet Jesus, by his own power, raised his own corpse up from the grave. Who can do that? 
What sort of person has the power to prophetically reveal their resurrection and then raise their own dead body up from the grave? And as we consider the evidence for their resurrection and and how the facts actually uh, support the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have to conclude that Jesus Christ must be God incarnate. And not only that, but this also uh, proves the promise that he made to a woman named Martha. The promise I'm referring to, it's found in John chapter 11. It's here where Christ declares this. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus is the resurrection. And he is the life. And he proved this on the day when he raised his own lifeless body up from the grave. It's for this reason that I encourage every person to place their faith in Jesus Christ. If you have any hope in the resurrection, then your faith must be in Jesus Christ because he is the resurrection. And he is the life. And he came and died on a cross receiving the punishment that we deserve so that sinners like us can receive the forgiveness that we do not deserve. And so that those who trust in him can rest in knowing that our risen redeemer is going to save us from the judgment that will occur when he calls forth the living and the dead to stand before his great white throne. That judgment day is coming and those who reject Jesus Christ will discover that there is hell to pay for every sin they've ever committed. But Jesus would spare us from this. And he would save us from that punishment and that judgment. It's for this reason that he came and died for our sins and rose from the grave so that we can have everlasting life. If you haven't yet, I encourage you today, trust in Jesus Christ because he is the resurrection and he is the life. At the same time, for those of you who have already placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I encourage you on this Easter, let's rejoice in knowing that our faith in Jesus' resurrection is established by the facts. Our faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is supported by the facts. Because I'm here to tell you, there's overwhelming evidence for Easter. Our Savior is risen. And we can rest in knowing that Jesus is the resurrection and he is the life. Let's pray.